0: Well, good morning once again, and happy you, you can join us today. And it's a, it's a beautiful Sunday here in Sisna Park and Texas morning. We're resuming in the Gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 5, so if you'd like to turn there in your Bible. And as we begin today, before I read that, I'm actually going to pray first. Praying beginning with Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, We again come to you in praise and rejoicing that we are again able to meet in person may you bless our time in your word may our lives be transformed by the truth of your scripture lord may we point to christ lord we continue to pray for our peace in our nation there's been so much violence and destruction in recent weeks lord may we continue to grow in grace and love lord may we shine with a light that is evident to all of those who we meet may we have a burden. That we are your ambassadors in the world. That how we talk and act and treat people and love people is all meant to be a reflection of the great God whom we serve. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, the text is John chapter 5, and it'll be verses 37 through 47, the end of the passage. And the Father who has sent me has borne himself about me, His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So again, finishing up John 5 today. The last time we were in John, a couple weeks ago, Jesus was talking of those who bore witness about him. And we talked about three witnesses to Christ. John the Baptist, the works of Christ, and God the Father. In our passage today, we will see a fourth witness to Christ, the scriptures themselves bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is. And I'll say up front that I love this passage. Jesus is making the concluding remarks of a, of a speech that he began in verse 19. The last time we were in John, we quoted part of verse 37. Jesus was talking of God as a witness to his messianic identity. And that's where we'll begin this morning. And this is my plan for us today We're going to talk about the passage, and at the end of the section, it'll lead into some closing remarks on the scriptures and how they point to Jesus. First, what I want to make as we begin this section is misunderstanding the Bible, quoting from verses 37 and 38. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you have never heard his form you have never seen and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent once again a couple of weeks ago I talked about how God bears witness to Christ and our passage this morning points to how the scripture bears witness to Christ but Jesus will talk of God to lead into the scriptures as a witness to his messianic identity And so Jesus begins in our passage by saying that God has sent him and that God bears witness to him. And then Jesus tells the Pharisees that they have never heard the voice of God, nor seen God, nor do they have the word of God dwelling in them. Saying the true thing is not always the popular thing. And Jesus, once again, does not mince words with the Pharisees. He says that they have never heard the voice of God. And keep in mind the context of what Jesus is saying. He's talking to the experts of the Old Testament, the Pharisees. God had given his word to the Jewish people. It was a point of pride. And they have Jesus speaking to them. Jesus, who is, they don't know it, but God incarnate, speaking the word of God. In John chapter 3, verse 34, Jesus had said, He whom God has sent utters the words of God. Also remember how John's Gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God whom the Pharisees don't hear. There's the irony that the Pharisees are listening to God to speak to them, and yet they don't hear what he's saying. Moses had heard the literal voice of God in the Old Testament and an idea that will come up at the end of this passage is that if the pharisees had been true followers of moses they would have recognized jesus for who he was it's also true that the pharisees often missed the heart of god's teachings it can be so easy to know a lot about the bible but to not truly have the bible change in your heart I remember when I was in seminary and at the beginning of classes, we would so often pray a common refrain was that we would ask God to grow in heart knowledge, not just head knowledge. As James prays in his book, that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let's consider for just a moment the confrontation which inspired this entire speech that Jesus has given. It began with Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath, which the Pharisees had considered a violation of the law because they had such a restrictive view of what it meant to follow the Sabbath. Jesus says that they have never seen God's form. Again, there is irony in that they are looking at God incarnate, who is telling them this. They're actually looking at Jesus, who is God on earth, but don't see him for who he is. And it is also true that Jesus has seen the Father, and they have not. In verse 38, he's already told them that they've never truly heard from God, and here he's saying that God's word is not abiding in them. When Jesus says that they do not believe in the one whom the Lord has sent, obviously he's referring to himself. And Jesus continues his harangue against the Pharisees, and that brings us to a second point. The scriptures bear witness to Jesus, verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus acknowledges that the Pharisees do study the scriptures. They studied them intensely. But as D.A. Carson points out, there is nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the scriptures. At least there isn't if you're missing the ultimate point and the ultimate purpose of the scriptures and pointing to the glorious and gracious God who has made a way for fallen man to be redeemed. Plenty of people value the moral teachings of the Bible. Even many non-Christians would affirm that. But that is not the sole saving point of God's holy word. People can study the scriptures. A person can know the Bible backwards and forwards. All over the country and in other parts of the world at universities, you have some Bible professors who know the Bible who are atheists. Not at an evangelical seminary like where I went to school, but at universities, there absolutely are non-Bible-believing Bible scholars. But if you don't understand that it is Christ to whom the Scriptures bear witness, you've missed the whole point of the Bible. When I was in seminary, one of my preaching classes, we had to do a sermon. But before we did the sermon, we had a long list of things that we had to do. A bunch of things that no pastor ever, ever, ever does on a week to week basis. We had to translate the passage from the original Hebrew into English. We had to give grammatical comments on the Hebrew. We had to give a grammatical outline of the Hebrew text. We had to do a sermon outline, and on and on and on. It was a ton of work. And then after doing all of that, you actually had to write a sermon. And it was a hard sermon to write because after spending all of this time doing that, I didn't really understand the passage that well. My point is that you can spend lots and lots and lots of time studying the Bible and miss what it's saying. Similarly, a person can have long sections of scripture memorized, that's fine. But are those verses impacting you? Are they impacting your life? Are they impacting how you look at God? Are they impacting your trust in Christ? Jesus says at the end of verse 39 that it is the scriptures which bear witness about him. It's not the first time, nor is it the last time in this gospel that it talks of the scriptures as pointing to Jesus. Put another way, Jesus is here speaking with the Pharisees and he's telling them that they don't truly know the scriptures because they don't know Jesus. And it is the scriptures which point to Jesus they had the attestation of the prophet who had come before John the Baptist they saw the signs that Jesus was doing they had his teaching they had reason to believe but did not it's not that they should have had a perfectly worked out theology of who Jesus was the the disciples didn't even have that but as the disciples saw the ministry of Jesus unfolding, they were drawn to this man and had a growing knowledge of who he was. When Philip was called to be a follower of Jesus at the beginning of this gospel, Philip points to the scriptures. John one forty five. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. When Jesus does his first sign, where he turns water into wine, John notes that this helped make sense of his entire ministry later on, John two twenty two. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And then you have Jesus interacting with Nicodemus, another of the Pharisees, the teacher of Israel, an expert in the law, John 3.10, Jesus asks him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? The Pharisees, with whom Jesus is speaking in our section, instead they hated Jesus, plotted against Jesus, and ultimately set their actions towards crucifying Jesus. While it is true that we have the whole story and the Pharisees did not, they also had the chance to see and hear and experience the ministry of Christ. And so the Pharisees are judged on account of their failure to recognize the Scriptures as pointing to Christ. Jesus continues speaking to the Pharisees. He's talked about the witness of the Scriptures. And now he comes back to a verdict against the Pharisees. Verses 41 and 42. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus says he doesn't receive glory from people. He's pointing, again, to the witness of his works, of God, of the scriptures, all witnessing to his divine identity. Jesus is glorious because of who he is. The glory of Christ is not contingent upon the adulation of humanity. The earth revolves around the sun, regardless of if a person wants to believe that or not. Borrowing again from D.A. Carson in his commentary, if Jesus had primarily cared about receiving glory from men, he could have pandered to the Pharisees. He could have said what they wanted to hear, but then what kind of Messiah would he be? He came to do the will of the Father, not to do the will of men. Verses 43 and 44. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So verse 43, Jesus points to God in whose whose name he has come. Jesus says that if another comes in his own name, they would receive that person. That's kind of an odd verse, an odd saying, I should say. It follows from the fact that they're mistaken and blind to the true Messiah, that they therefore are going to be susceptible to following a false Messiah. And historically, we know that there were many first century false messiahs after Jesus who claimed to be Christ. Instead, the leaders received glory from one another They're looking for the Messiah, but for the wrong reasons. Not out of love for God, not out of a desire for truth, not to know salvation. The people wanted a Messiah, but not the Messiah who Jesus was. Not the Messiah who points out their sin, points out the flaws in their system, who wouldn't do what they wanted him to do. Our world can be just as susceptible to this. That's why it's important to come to Jesus, to come to the word of God in humility, if if you're never challenged by what Jesus is saying, you might simply be following a Messiah of your own making. We are sinful, and therefore there is a constant reformation of the human heart and encouraging the person and teachings of Christ. Our default setting is sin, not righteousness. Third point, the indictment of the Pharisees beginning in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus is likely referring to the entire Old Testament and the Mosaic Covenant He says that Moses is the accuser of the Pharisees. It's symbolic. It's not to say that Moses himself is the divine judge. Obviously, Moses is just a man. But Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you want to push back? You want to put so much stock in the Old Testament? You want to put so much stock into the law of Moses? Well, if you really understood that, you would believe Moses because his writings are about me. Again, this is an indictment from Jesus to the Pharisees. To truly believe in the writings of Moses is to believe in Jesus. And this is the point to which we've been building up this morning and where we'll be spending the rest of our time. Consider for a moment, verses 39 and 40, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. And then from 46 into 47, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Bible is a book about Jesus. You have prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ, It's amazing. You have very specific prophecies about Jesus which are fulfilled in the New Testament. Think about it for a moment. You have where he'd be born. You have that his ministry would be preceded by a forerunner. He'd be born of a virgin. Hosea said that he would travel to Egypt. We see this early in Matthew. Psalm 40 predicted that he would preach repentance to Israel. Psalm 78 predicted that he would teach in parables. Isaiah 6 9 predicts that people would not listen to his teaching. To quote, he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Other prophecies fulfilled in Christ. He would have a miraculous ministry, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The Old Testament mentions that he would minister in Galilee and draw Gentiles to himself. The Old Testament mentions that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, be plotted against, be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. You have prophecies that he would be forsaken by God. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Psalm 22.16 says that he would be pierced. This is often taken as a prophecy referring to his crucifixion, in spite of the fact that crucifixion didn't even exist at the time. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. The Old Testament says that lots would be cast for his clothing and that those close to him would abandon him. Psalm 41.9 Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The Messiah would usher in a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I realize that some of these fulfilled prophecies, the Pharisees weren't aware of them yet. Not to mention... that some of them you don't have control over. You don't have control over where you're born or the family that you would be born from. You don't have control over all the events in your lifetime. Yet we have all of these prophecies that point us to what would happen during Christ's ministry. A skeptical person could look at all these and try to explain it away. Well, what if the writers of the New Testament just read through the Old Testament, pulled out these little details, and sort of reverse engineered the story? The answer to that is that that makes no sense. When you recall that the apostles were persecuted and died for their faith. Why would they make up a story and then die for something that they knew wasn't true? Well, what if it's a coincidence? The idea that a person coincidentally had all of the Old Testament prophecies pointing to themselves is a bigger leap of faith than believing that Jesus is who he says he is. Perhaps some of you have heard this illustration. A mathematician and astronomer named Peter Stoner calculated the odds of just eight of these prophecies of Jesus coincidentally being fulfilled and coming true. He said that the odds of that were 1 in 10 the 17th power or in other words one in 100 quadrillion similar odds to the University of Illinois winning the national championship in football this year put more seriously the odds of something that are one in 100 quadrillion would be like taking the entire state of Texas and covering the whole state two feet deep and silver dollar coins. Taking one of those coins and marking it with a red X. Mixing that coin in somewhere randomly anywhere in Texas. And then you take a person, put a blindfold on them, set them walking, they can walk as far or as little as they want, go wherever they want within Texas, reach however deep they want to reach in this two foot high pile of coins. And out of all of the state of Texas, to pull the one coin with the red X. Similar odds to Jesus coincidentally fulfilling just eight prophecies, even though he fulfills many more than eight. The argument that it's a coincidence is absurd. The scriptures literally point to Jesus. But prophecy is not the only way how the scriptures point to Christ. You have patterns, sometimes called types of Christ throughout the Old Testament. The lamb led to slaughter in Isaiah 53 is a type pointing us to Christ, the greater lamb who was led to slaughter. Isaac was a type for Christ in that he was the promised son of Abraham. He was the son Abraham was asked to sacrifice. But at the pivotal moment, God said that he himself would provide the sacrifice. God sacrificed his son, so, Abraham didn't have to. Joseph was a type for Christ in that he suffered unjustly and was then exalted to save his people. What was meant for evil, God meant for good. Moses was a type for Christ in that he was a mediator between God and the people. But in Jesus, we see the greater mediator. Moses had to cover his face before God. Jesus is the one who has seen God. Moses was given the Ten Commandments on a mountain. Jesus spoke with authority in the Sermon on the Mount. Joshua was a type for Christ in that he led Israel into the land. And Jesus leads his people into the greater land, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth. David, the great king of Israel, who was a man after God's own heart as a type for Christ, the greater king. Jonah, was a type for Christ, and that he spent three days in the fish, just as Jesus spent three days in the tomb. And there are many, many, many more people and examples. And there are many other themes which show types or themes for Christ that he would fulfill. Some of these themes we've talked about before. Sonship is a theme in the Old Testament where Israel and the Davidic kings are called the son of God jesus is the true son of god who allows us to be adopted as god's children in the old testament priests offered sacrifices at the temple jesus is the great high priest who is able to approach god and offers himself as a sacrifice so that we could be redeemed to god and the temple is the presence of god in the world jesus is literally god with us the temple other themes sabbath faith in jesus is what brings the true sabbath as we enter into God's rest. You have the covenants of the Old Testament, but Jesus both fulfills the old covenant and ushers in the new covenant. You have creation, Jesus brings new creation. You have wisdom, Jesus is the personification of wisdom. Jesus is the truer Israel who follows the law perfectly. It all points to Christ. It's all about Christ. The Old Testament feasts are all about Jesus. His crucifixion happened at the time of Passover. Passover was the celebration of God, of redeeming and celebrating God's redemption of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. It was commemorated by the sacrifice of a lamb. Jesus is the true Passover lamb who redeems people, not from the slavery of another nation, but from the oppression and slavery of sin itself. You have the Old Testament Holy Day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They took two goats, one was sacrificed for sins, again, symbolic of Jesus paying the ultimate price. The other goat was sent out of the camp, which was a symbol of our sins being taken away from us. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament writers certainly thought that. They point to the presence of Christ in the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews talked of Moses' trust in Christ, Hebrews eleven twenty-four to 26, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The Apostle Paul talks of Jesus' presence with the Israelites in the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10, verses two to four. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Jude pointed to Jesus as the one who had redeemed the Israelites from Egypt. Now, Jude, Jude 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. This is debated, but I would even argue that Jesus is the fourth man in the fiery furnace with Daniel, the heavenly figure with whom Jacob wrestles, and the king and priest Melchizedek to whom Abraham paid homage. If you read the Old Testament, you have all of these genealogies. Maybe it's tempting to want to skip over them or think that they don't matter. But the genealogies form links in a chain which leads to Christ. It's all about Jesus. From Luke 24, verses 26 and 27, a passage we talked about at Easter, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus, and he interacts with two travelers. They don't know that it is the Lord Jesus in their midst. It says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The resurrected Lord explaining how the whole Bible points to himself. The scriptures were explained from Moses and the prophets as pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the key that unlocks the Bible. I truly hope that understanding this is something that is edifying and encouraging. That these are not just legends or stories, that it is the word of God, written by different people in different cultures in different centuries, from fishermen to kings, and from tax collectors to doctors. But it is a unified message from start to finish, pointing us to Jesus and the gospel. The Bible is a challenging book, but it's an impossible book if you don't understand that it's all about Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures point to Christ, therefore, The scriptures point to life. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your holy word. Lord, it is a blessing that you have given to us. Lord, may we be devoted to that and knowing that, Lord, and then living that out. In Jesus' name, amen.